yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad, in print and online, 24-7. And of course, I'm BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every week, you can find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where we go behind the lens and below the line with some of the great filmmakers of today, the master craftsmen below the line and behind the lens. Talking film, television, music, the literary world, and stage, as well as special events such as Oscars, Spirit Awards, and of course, one of our favorites, the upcoming TCM Classic Film Festival. As you can imagine, listening to me right now, I am probably not in studio today. If you guess that, you are absolutely correct. Uh, last week I had to cancel the show due to succumbing to this flu that is ravaging so many of us. I had absolutely no voice at all. In fact, I just got my voice back late on Saturday. Uh, so I am still recovering and I am home. But you are getting a brand new show today, albeit pre-recorded. Uh, I'm going to populate the show with full interviews of some incredible, talented indie filmmakers. And all of our regular listeners and my regular readers know how much I love the indie filmmaking world. So, let's just get started here. You've heard me talk about it over the past few weeks. Uh, the Iron Orchard. Adapted by the novel from Tom Pendleton. It is the story of... It's a story of love, money, ambition. It's a cautionary tale. And it's all set in 1940s, 50s, early 60s, West Texas. The day and age of the wildcatters. Based on Tom Pendleton's novel, it is adapted by Ty Roberts, writer and director, stars Lane Garrison, and Ned Van Zandt, who just happens to be not only Tom Pendleton's son, but the grandson of one of the founding fathers of Fort Worth, Texas. So there is a lot of authenticity and history infused into this film. Shot on location in Midland, Texas, Big Springs, in actual oil fields, uh, many of which showcase derricks that were built and installed back in the 1940s. There's a mythic and mystic side to this story that has universal appeal. It capitalizes on the big dreams, get rich, all those great ideals. And the film is beautifully, beautifully lensed by Matthew Plinfossi, a cinematographer, shot with Panavision cameras and lenses, incredible production design by Mars Fahiri, so I'm just going to let you take a listen right now to my conversation with three incredible guys, Ty, Lane, and Ned, as they talk about the Iron Orchard. Well, I got to tell you, I was spellbound watching the Iron Orchard. Guys, first of all, Ty, one of the greatest things you could have done was bring in, was bring in Matthew as your cinematographer with fresh eyes, somebody that isn't used to, to lensing the Texas landscape. So you really feel the wonder of this world in the, in the late 30s and the 40s as it's burgeoning and developing. Beautiful, beautiful job from that point of view. Well, thank you. That was exactly the idea, to have a fresh eye out there, you know, and to capture it in a, in a unique and beautiful way. I mean... It's hard to point a camera in any direction out there without some beauty. 
But, uh, you know, his approach and his passion is what we needed. And uh, he was he was just an incredible collaborator on this. So you know, thank I'm, you for recognizing that. I'm well, too- I got to say that Ty is a bit of a genius with that because he said that, I said, where's our DP at? And he said, well, he's actually from Paris or he's from France. And I said, he's never been to Texas? And he said, no. And I go, you're about to bring him to Big Spring, Texas? <laughs> and he got off the plane and... This guy was in love with the light. He used to say stuff like, you do not tell me where to shoot. The camera tells me where to shoot. And Ty would be trying to pull him off the set because the sunsets and the sunrises were so beautiful. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the landscape is beautiful, but that light, that Texas light always lenses so well. Uh, in film and television, and to see what you do here, especially when you bring in, I love seeing a lot of what he captured with clouds, because the weather can change on a dime. Uh, So you get some really beautiful stuff, but what you also do with him from a visual, from a tonal bandwidth viewpoint, Ty, is you create this great metaphor with the wide open spaces and the open blue skies and Jim... Jim's whole idea of dreaming and wanting more. And then when we get into Fort Worth in the second half of the film, you then translate that into great dutching, wonderful angles, dutching upwards at these very tall buildings, at, you know, the bit larger-than-life house, the mini castle. And you really work that into the character of Jim. We see yeah, his dreams. Yeah, absolutely. Risen to the top at this point. You know, some of those angles were to frame out the, uh, you know, 2010 Suburbans on the uh, street. But, you know, it worked also, you know, uh, in certain, at certain moments. And, you know, Jim's stature rises and everything gets uh, more rich and colorful and vibrant and Mm -hmm. sexy um, as as his whole sort of life uh, evolved. Yeah. I mean, very uh, cohesive in that way. Now, I know that you've done cinematography in the past, Ty, so I'm curious. What Did you not want to lens this yourself? Or, you know, or you know, and handing over the reins to Matthew, did you ever have the inclination to want to jump in there and start, you know, doing focus pulling or, you know, or, <laughs> or camera operation? That's a great question, you know. Um, of course... As, as a cinematographer myself and, you know, having shot a lot, you want to be able to control that to an extent, but you've got to choose your battles on these, uh, you know, indie projects where you're really flying through the days and you have a tight schedule. Um, for me, I had to sort of pass that along because I wanted to focus as much as possible on the performances and uh, working with the, with the actors, which also was very challenging just because of our short time frame. But, you know, the whole key component was finding a cinematographer that you are have a great second sort of hand with and are able to communicate in a way that's, uh, you know, there's a shorthand where, where you guys can, can talk about things that make sense and it just, you go. And I ultimately, it's a huge amount of trust for me, but, you know, he had a sense of what I was going after. Mm-hmm. And once I understood that he got that, you know, he's a much more accomplished cinematographer than I sure was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to always defer to him about that. Yeah, And I know you were shooting. So, you know, he always listened to my ideas. And when I had him, you know, there were 10 shots in the movie that I knew two years ago that had to be there. And so I communicate those, those sort of concepts and, he embraced them and ran with them. You know, mm-hmm. there's a couple of long takes that, uh, you know, I let I let him understand kind of what I was going after and, and then let him run loose. And he just pulled it off. And, you know, it was just a really incredible collaboration between, you know, two people who were trying to dance in a du- dust storm. You know? <laughs> yeah. Now, I know you used a Panavision packet, but I'm curious did you use their anamorphic lenses? And if so, did you use their vintage or did you use their newer ones? Yeah, good question. We, uh, we use Panavision uh, lenses for sure, anamorphic, uh, on the Airy uh, Mini Alexa. Mm-hmm. We used three series of lenses, the B, the C, and the D series lenses. Um, I believe the C are the oldest. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are three different sort of time periods throughout the movie. Right. Um, you know, late 30s, 40s, and then 50s. And so we sort of rotated through our lens package for each of those decades. And as we got to the 50s, I believe that was the D. I, I might, might have confused those, uh, you know, how they actually played out. But uh, Matthew had a very specific plan. And, you know, each each set of lenses that we had was for a specific time frame. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, the crazy thing was is in one day, you know, we oftentimes shot every time frame. So we were constantly changing lenses and, you know, changing wardrobes and, as Lane will tell you, putting on, you know, fat suits and, you know, him going from 19 or from his 20s to his late 30s. So, I mean... Between cameras and characters and just sort of the tone of everything, it, it changed all very quickly. We did not have the luxury of shooting in order, so we were bouncing back and forth. And I'd be out in the middle of the street throwing on a fat suit, taking oil off my body, unparting my hair, graying my hair, then going back. Now you're 19 years old, and while I'm doing that, these guys are playing with the camera, changing the lens package and everything. It's just amazing that we did this in 24 days because every department had to be on their toes. Every department. And it was just, it's remarkable when I see the movie and I'm still blown away by it. Well, I I have to tell you, oh, designated driver, that so much, we get so much not only from your stance, your posture, your body language and conveying Jim's emotions at, and his mindset at various points in his life is fabulous. But then you throw in the clothes, the hair, as you just mentioned, and the shoes. i got to tell you, your costumer, shoes, most guys' shoes tell story, and we see that here. And I, I love that little detail that, that you embrace, Ty. And, I mean, Lane, it just, you wear everything so perfectly for each era. Well, well, thank you. I mean, you know, when you get a movie like this, you know that every department's killed it, and that was Juliana, how do I pronounce her last name? Hoff Power. Hoff Power, <laughs> who did the wardrobe and costume, and she was just as passionate as everybody else. I mean, down to the watch, down to the detail of the shoe. If he'd been out in the oil field that day, did his, where does oil need to go on his shirt? And, I mean... When you have that many people that are that passionate, that's when you have these good movies, and they're so rare. And I think, you know, it started with Ned's dad wrote a phenomenal novel, mm-hmm. and Jerry DeLeon, coupled with Ty, finally cracked the book that people have been trying to make for 50 years. You know, everyone from Paul Newman to Clint Eastwood to Steve McQueen had talked about playing Jim McNeely. Every major producer flew... I mean, when Dad was a little boy, he had lunch with every major Hollywood star. Robert Redford. Robert Redford, for instance, trying to get this done. And it's by the grace of God, and as we call it, Santa Rita, that it it came home with Ty. And he was able to, you know, take it out with the bottom of the ninth and two outs, and he hit a home run. Well, I got to tell you, I'm going to date myself here, but I read Tom's book. In junior high school in 1971. Wow. Really? Really. Wow. How did it find you? It, it A teacher found it and introduced it to the class. Wow. Where did you grow up? In, in suburban Philadelphia. Oh, no wow. way. That's so awesome. Well, you know, Pennsylvania, uh, obviously, is, is big oil country, so... You know, it was definitely up in that part of the country. So yeah, um, all the president's men, which I just recently rewatched, and I remember this. And there's a scene in Ben Bradley's office at the Washington Post, mm-hmm. the recreation of his office, and prominent there in his bookshelf is the Iron Orchard. Oh my! Now I have yeah. to. Now I'm going to have to pull yeah. out that DVD. Well, like you brought up a good point, though, <laughs> Debbie, is that. You know, you're in Pennsylvania, and, and we've been reiterating this because the films played so well at all these festivals in Europe and across the world, and we've won tons of awards. Ty and Matthew were nominated at Camera Image in mm-hmm. Poland, which is huge in its own right. Um, but it's it's not just a Texas story. It's got a universal theme to it. And I think 
that it's going to strike a chord with a lot of a lot of people. Well, absolutely. And I'm number one. I'm surprised it took this long to get the film made. Um, something that always stuck with me about the book, all these decades later, were the themes in the book: love, money, ambition. Um, that old choice of do you go with your heart? You know, do you go for love? And what is love? Is is it love, in this case, Jim for Lee, or is it Jim's love of money and power? And that's something that is universal. Yeah, those are both, that's been man's struggle, I guess, it's a ton of time. And then, of course, you throw in this beautiful, it's, it's a love story about Jim's love of oil and power, Jim's love of Lee, and also it's a love letter to the West. And that time yeah. that everybody just romanticizes about absolutely yeah it, it that's a really key component to it it was our you know chance to to send a love letter to west texas you know my grandfather uh grew up out there kind of doing what jim did early on and my dad was an independent guy later on in life and uh he wrote the ups and downs of the uh price of intermediate and uh, it's just been a part of my life, and as a filmmaker, you know, I'd always wanted to capture West Texas somehow and mm -hmm. capture the lifestyle of the independent oil man. It's because they're all characters. Mm -hmm. They're just really, you know, of course they're the mythic sort of character you see in the movies, but they're just all really interesting, funny, unique breed of, of folks that, of course you get in other industries, but they're all concentrated out in West Texas, and you just, you get them all, so... To me, it was just such an important piece from a, a cultural to a, a, you know, a very specific endemic culture to a much more broad universal theme of, of what you were saying, you know, uh, ambition versus love. Mm -hmm. you know, as, as a young man in this world, how do we balance that? How do we uh, maintain uh, a healthy balance between love and ambition and, and you know, trying to keep your head on straight mm -hmm. and don't make the wrong decisions. Such an important piece to come approach and, and do. Uh, it's been an eight-year work in pro progress. <laughs> you know, it's it's really my first big feature, and it's something that uh, you know I'm just incredibly proud to have done. And you know, to have done it in West Texas, all the more real. I just wanted to be super authentic. And you know, we worked with a lot of consultants and a lot of old timers on set uh, through props, through you know wardrobe, everything. Who, who checked it off and said, you guys are doing this right. Mm, well, I have to say, when it comes to authenticity... Yeah, I mean, we changed dialogue in the moment with the drillers, you know. We used a vernacular that's probably, you know, nowhere outside of West Texas, or at least the whole time. Well, your authenticity is absolutely astounding, and especially when you actually get onto the rigs. Yeah. Uh, it, it's you Obviously, you were shooting all of this on location, so I'm curious... You know, Ned, um, with the family name of Van Zant and the legacy that you have in Texas, how important, how influential were you in, in Ty gaining access uh, to some of these locations? Well, not very. Uh, <laughs> he was because of the book. Everybody knew the book. Yeah. See? <laughs> Don't yeah, sell well, yourself you know, short. I'm in New York, and I've been, I've been kind of separated from all this. I mean, I, actually, when I there was a film festival here a couple of months ago, which we won Best of Fest, and that was the first time I'd been home to Fort Worth in 30 years. But um, you know, I, I'm just blown away at the authenticity uh, of everything. I think it was cool, a really cool moment for Ned and his brother Tom, where they said after they saw it for the first time, my dad would be proud. Oh yeah, oh. and. And I think that's, that's just one of the things, you know, we, sh we screened it for about 100 of the real oil guys and our investors, and they were the first people to see a rough cut. And every one of them applauded. Some of them cried and said, you guys nailed it and are blown away by this. And I, I think after that moment, I was less nervous, and I knew that this really is a special film, and this is going to be around for a long time. And it's just so cool and such an honor to be part of a film like that. I mean, that's a dream for 
all of us as a director, as a writer, as an actor, for all of us, you know, that's why you get in the movie business. You want to have a movie where everybody goes, man, that was awesome. Well, what did each of you take away from the personally take away from the experience of making this film that you will now take forward into your future works? Well, I was 10 years old when the book came out and I hadn't read it. And um, I read it for the first time when my dad died uh, when I was 18. That was 40 years ago. Not 40 years ago, but it was it was in 1972, and um, so this for me, I never expected to be part of this film per se, and the fact that I I I got to be, I mean it's 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 quite heady, it's like full circle, but I couldn't be more proud to, you know, with what Ty has done, and with with this cast that I get to work, you know, I mean it's just a first rate cast. Uh, well, and uh, so anyway, it's been kind of like a homecoming for me. And, and you know, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't just thrilled. We, uh, I'll, I'll save the best for last. Ty will go last. But for me, you know, what I took from it is I never knew I could work that hard as an actor and accomplish the things that I wanted to accomplish as an actor until this film. I don't think, you know, we all have self-doubts. And I don't think that I truly believed I was capable of going to places that I went to with this movie. Mm -hmm. Now set the bar so high for me when I get other material, which I've sent a lot, I don't want to do it because it needs to be as good, if not better than this, and that's going to be hard to do. But for me, it taught me just a work ethic to be able to grow as an actor and really trust trust the process, trust my instincts, trust my director. I just learned... I learned, you know, I've been in the business 20 years, and this movie taught me more than I ever learned in the 19 before that. And what about for you, Ty? Yeah, look, I think it's the, the, the lessons learned on this one are just countless, and I couldn't even begin to go into all of them. But I think the, the biggest takeaway really is just knowing that if you put your heart and soul into something and just keep fighting for it, it's going to come, and one, and two, as it's a film, you know, the, the act of collaboration and communication. Um, you know, film sets are notorious for uh, being kind of madhouses, and I think, I think we really, really pulled off something special uh, on a production level as, as well because we just, we all really collaborated together on, in a way that I hadn't before, and it was out of necessity because of uh, uh, time and money and, you know, heat and everything. And it just, that beautiful collaboration, I think, really shows on screen. And I think it's just, I can't, I can't, you know, speak more highly of everybody who was involved on that level between the actors and, you know, Matthew and producers and, you know, everybody else, the wardrobe. I mean, it's just really, really a special, it was a special moment and I'll never forget it, so... You know, no, you uh, guys did. You really guys important to just always go for it, you know, and just keep keep plugging away, and it's all going to come together. In the- and that was Ty Roberts, Lane Garrison, and Ned Van Zant talking about the Iron Orchard. It is out in limited release now, and I believe also available on digital, soon to be on demand, hopefully and expanding wider in theaters. So let's go from period West Texas to period Massachusetts with Diane. Writer-director Kent Jones is most known for his documentary work. The last film he did, Hitchcock Truffaut, amazing documentary, and every film student in the country undoubtedly has at some point in their career come across the book, Hitchcock Truffaut. It is essentially a Bible, a dog-eared Bible for many of us on some of the finer hints of filmmaking, thanks to conversations and engagements between Alfred Hitchcock and Francois Truffaut. But now Kent shifts gears and moves into the narrative feature with Diane, starring Mary Kay Place, 
for my money, what Kent does here for Mary Kay, very similar to what Brett Haley did with Sam Elliott and the hero. This is a beautiful, intimate character study about a woman of the ARP age. She, all she cares about is everyone but herself. She sees herself as a failure as a mother, a failure as a friend, and she cares, caring for others fills that hole almost as an atonement, redeeming the guilt that she feels for her self-perceived failures. Set in Massachusetts, production design is by Debbie DeVia. She creates an int intimacy of home, hearth, kitchen, very homespun feeling. Costumer Carissa Kelly follows through on that. And it is all beautifully lensed by Wyatt Garfield, who employs, as you will hear, some of the oldest tricks in the book for creating a very specific cinematic look and filmic look to the grain of this film. This, the cast is magnificent. Mary Kay Place, Andrea Martin, Estelle Parsons, Joyce Van Patten, Glynis O'Connor, Phyllis Somerville. These ladies are legends of stage and the big and small screens. They are phenomenal. And then we throw in Jake Lacey. Jake Lacey, we have seen him already deliver such a myriad of performances with great diversity. An obvious child, Carol, and then got to hone his comedic chops with Rowan Atkinson. Um, it is an engaging film. Wyatt Garfield's lensing really does steep us in a timelessness, but with a warmth as we go through the ages with the character of Diane. The film is, it's a poetry, a poetry of the motions of life. It is stunning. There's a spirituality. And you can't help but be drawn to this woman, to this world around her. And how she puts one foot in front of the other to keep going, no matter what she faces, what she tries to run from, or what life hands her. So take a listen to my exclusive interview with Kent Jones, writer-director, as we talk about Diane. All right, bear, I apologize, I have the flu, so my voice is uh, oh, man. a bit crappy. But, Sorry uh, about that. It's so good to talk to you. We last spoke for Hitchcock and Truffaut. Yeah, I remember. I love that film, what you did so much. I mean, that was my Bible. Mm. The book was my Bible when I was in film school back in the late 70s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what you did was great. But now to see you move into the narrative feature. Yeah. You stole my heart with this film. The cast that you have put together here is something we don't get to see often enough. Yeah. And it's a real treat. And this story, it is such an intimate character study that talks about death and grief and guilt. But it's also about putting one foot in front of the other and you keep going and moving forward. Yeah. And you never give up. Yeah. And this is such a perfect film for the ARP generation, but it's also a perfect film for the younger generation to give them an idea of how to function and how to move forward in life. So well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. How did you put together this entire concept and these incredible characters? Every character is so well detailed. Um, it did come from my own experience growing up with my great aunt, and, you know, that's why the, the some of the language in the movie and some of the way of, you know, the way that they kind of relate to each other is, is you know, I mean, I suppose from an earlier era, but it didn't really matter to me. Um, the important thing was to just get to the emotional world there. And I, I, uh, I don't know, I was very attentive to them and 
who they were, you know, and what, how they were together and how we all were together as a family, a big, really big extended family when I was very young. And I started just, I was, I was really, um, I had the first inkling of wanting to just do something when I was a teenager. And then it's been great to live with it over the years and have it, you know, kind of keep coming back to me and acquire layers. And at a certain point, it became about a mother and a son, and you know, who's an addict. And um, uh, and then when I saw the Rainmaker um, 20 years ago, Mary Kay's performance, and that really startled me. And I thought, well, when I make this movie, I'll write it for her. Uh, and you know, then I found myself. And I spent more years thinking about it, going back to it, and then I found myself meeting her and telling her what I had in mind. And, uh, you know, then I was able to write the script only after my, my mom passed away. Uh, and then I really realized later why that was the case, that there was just, you know, a lot of her in the movie. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. It was it was a it was a great experience to just be living with something over the years and having it grow up with me. Well, I love the warmth that you bring with all of these characters. As I was watching the film, I kept thinking about my very large extended German family. Yeah. And all my great aunts and uncles and they'd come over from Germany and yeah. you'd sit around the dining room table in the kitchen yeah. for hours on end. And I love the language. I love the language and the cadences that that you bring forth. That was really important to me because I feel like um, I feel like there are two things. On the one hand, you know, coming from New England, it's like you know, uh, and Western Massachusetts. Uh, I feel like it's not a part of the world that really we really. much so and you extend it into your production design and your costuming and I have to say Carissa Kelly did an amazing job with your costumes for it's all very timeless but it also fits each of these characters with crocheted hats and these things you expect to see on this era of people yeah you know um, Carissa uh, I had to, first of all, educate myself about how to work with a costume designer, and, you know, um, and when I was interviewing costume designers, it was interesting because there were a few people that I met, and, and production designers I was interviewing, mm-hmm. and I was just, something just wasn't happening. People were kind of like saying, yeah, I think it's like a 70s world, kind of like Wes Anderson, and like, I don't even know what that and then the costume designers I met were good all of the time. But with Carissa, it was something else. I mean, I was really stunned by her lookbook and to the artistry of what she did. Um, and we, when we were working together, I was just amazed by what she was doing. And I told her so. And we worked together really closely. And then, you know, it worked out so well that she and I actually got married in October. Oh, my God. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you know, but truly it was, it grew out of our mutual respect for each other as artists. So, you know, and and then she's the one who recommended Debbie DeVilla, the production designer. Um, And Debbie, and she and Debbie had worked on um, a couple of movies together. And Debbie got what I wanted immediately. Mm -hmm. Immediately. Um, And so that was really one of 
celebratory experiences for me in a lot of ways. Yeah. This film's actually dedicated to Carissa. Was? I saw that in the credits. I saw that. Yeah. Um, Was this a big learning curve for you now having to deal with these additional departments in filmmaking like costume, like production design, which you don't have in a documentary? you know, um, come at it, in, in certain cases, I had to say, I don't know what, you know, you do, you have to tell me. I had, I, I understood right away, I, any time that I spent pretending that I knew something that I didn't was utterly wasted. That it was more important <laughs> to me to just say, you tell me. And so when Carissa was reading the script, for instance, and she would say, I don't know how much time has passed between these scenes. And I would say, well, it doesn't really matter. It could be weeks. It could be days. And she's like, that's great. But you have to tell me. It doesn't matter if you don't explain it in the film, but you have to tell me. I have to know. And I understood. Oh, right. I get it. Because it's like you're tuned into the way that the character presents themselves to the world every single day. And the sameness and the variation. Mm-hmm. And that happened in a lot of cases with a lot of people. So I loved working like with the gaffer. You know? ah. He was just the greatest. And in a lot of cases, people would say, I'm not used to talking to the director. I was like, oh, that's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, you know wh- I've got to ask you about working with your DP, working with Wyatt. I'm a huge fan of his work. Yeah. American Fable, I still think, is one of the most exquisite visual experiences. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, the the approach for the two of you to develop the visual tonal bandwidth that you have here, because here again, this is a lot different visually from what you would do with a documentary. Yeah, sure, of course. Well, I mean, Wyatt, I mean, the palette is Wyatt, Carissa, and Debbie altogether right? mm-hmm. and then the way that the, the general look of the movie um, uh, I sat down with Wyatt and said look I'm just going to call Jim Jarmusch and ask him what he did for Patterson because that's what I want I want that kind of warmth <clears throat> and Jim said simple we got quick prime lenses which a lot of people use to give you a kind of a softer look in I, general. And, and I love Cook Primes. It's a great movie. And then Fred Elms went out and got um, uh, old vintage hosiery, which is an old DP trick, and puts it over the back element of the lens. So those two things, you know, which diffuses the image, and, and those two things really, you know, were, were central. But also, I mean, we worked out how the camera was going to feel, what, you know, I mean, you know, we planned it very carefully because we had a very limited time frame and mm-hmm. you know, um, we prepared very carefully and um, uh, Wyatt was just utterly, you know, he, he was um, so precise and he was so tuned into the movie and tuned into the adventure of the movie and, you know, uh, I, it was, that was another, a different kind of relationship, and that was great in a different way, mm-hmm. working with Carissa and Debbie. Were there any real challenge, hurdles for you from a cinematographic standpoint, working with Wyatt, that you really had to become acclimated with to get the visual look and bandwidth you wanted? Can you be more precise? I'm not sure. That you mean... Um to actually translate my ideas into words to trans to translate your your from the page or what you envisioned in your mind onto well, the screen. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I think that giving him, you know, deciding that we were going to basically follow the visual scheme of, of the, the softness of Patterson, was mm-hmm. but then also. Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, I uh, I knew when I wanted the camera on uh, to dolly uh, versus 
Steadicam versus Gimbal. Mm-hmm. It's a different feeling, and I wanted, you know, I knew what where the camera moved, you know, when when the camera moves in onto Jake from around the corner, you know, in the um, uh, the cap day after he's first gotten clean, I knew how I wanted that to feel. The thing is, going to the spaces themselves and working out how things are gonna. You know uh, how you're going to be able to move stuff around is is really central to that. Mm-hmm. We did also, you know, some blocking rehearsals with the actors. You know, after we had gotten the space where Jake's apartment was going to be, um, we did some some stuff then so that we could, you know, um, that really, you know, oriented us so that was, you know, and save time. Um, but in terms of like how the, the palette of the movie translated with what I don't know. I mean, it's just a matter of being alive to what's there. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that I wanted, I knew that I wanted deep backgrounds whenever I could get them, and I also knew that I wanted, um, Carissa would say, a pop of color in, in almost every shot. Mm-hmm. Um, the deep background comes from just, you know, and I, I was able to translate that into, you know, an explanation by just talking about how Shashan a little bit, you know, um, how in his movies you'll get shots where you just see very, very far into the distance and activity or a mirror or something. So, you know, stuff like that. Um, and um, that's where having a visual vocabulary and a memory of other movies, you know, comes in handy. Mm-hmm. You, you know, and it was able to, in, in, in a very nuts and bolts way. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, you know, something else that you do here that is an incredible metaphor. You have Mary Kay in a car driving so often. You've got beautiful aerials, overheads of roads, twisting, turning, some straight shot. What was the importance of that? I think the metaphor is beautiful. Was this always designed in as you were writing this script and developing your your visual look? It's pretty, yeah. And it became I, we pushed even harder in the cutting room. It was like let's add more driving. You know, <laughs> I mean, we actually did on the on the after the the, the official shoot days wrapped. We took one more day. Just rigged up a car with with. Um, uh, Wyatt and um, Greg, the grip, um, and um, the focus puller, and we just got in a car and we drove. And um, we had gotten some previously, but we did most of it that day. We didn't do any aerial shots. It's all through the windshield. Wow. I also knew, you know, with 20 shooting days, you really have to, like, plan very carefully and use work economically. And so I knew that I wanted to just have one moment when you saw her from behind the wheel, through the windshield, mm-hmm. the other, looking in the other direction. That's, and have that at the pivotal moment in the movie, you know, after her cousin's tied and her son has gotten clean and she's driving up into the, into the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> other than that, I wanted to just be behind the wheel. And, you know, it's like you, on the one hand, uh, in that part of the world, you are behind the wheel of a car a lot. And it's different from being behind the wheel of a car here in L.A. You're driving the same back roads to and fro, back and forth, and you become meditators, and you become very at one with the car. You mm-hmm. know? And um, so I think that um, that's one thing. On the other hand, of course, as the movie goes on, yes, it becomes something else. Right. I, I, I think it's, you know, is it a metaphor? I don't know. I mean, it, it becomes about the movement of time and maybe specifically about the way that time kind of, sometimes life moves faster than you're living of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The older you get, the faster it moves. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to. I've got to ask you about casting Jake. I was so thrilled when I saw that he was in the film. Yeah. I'm even more thrilled with his performance. Yeah. I've been watching him since Obvious Child, and yeah, that's the one. and to see he was the standout in that film. Yeah. 
and to see what he's been, how he's been growing as an actor. What led you to Jake for this role? I think it's what I, it, the performance is great. You got an amazing performance. It was obvious child, but let me know. I thought that he was. I was so impressed by his acting in that movie. You know, I thought he was just really focused and really, you know, um, uh, present. And so, you know, I just really like, uh, and I also liked his face. I thought it was very unusual. He's not, um, he has a very, he has a face that's, that's not classically handsome, obviously, but he's also very magnetic, but then there's a, a hint of malevolence in his face, and that certainly comes into play in Carol, which mm-hmm. is a performance of his that I loved. And so, um, you know, when I met him, we clicked instantly, but and and you know we clicked over the fact that he really got that character and he really understood um, the aggressive, boorish side of being an addict, as opposed to the romantic side or the uh, tragic side. You know what I mean? Right. So he and he and about he perfectly understood um, being. Um, a drug addict stopping taking drugs, but then the addiction continues. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I loved working with Jake. I mean, I, I, again in a heartbeat. I just love what you brought out of him in his performance. Thank you. Was it difficult to round up all of these exquisite women for this movie? She's fabulous. Dee uh, O'Connell was just like uh, astonishing. You know, I mean, and Dee Dee, by the way, um, it turns out comes from the same town as I do. So, you know, um, and Josephine Patton, I don't know, I was in, in Estelle, who I saw on stage when I was seven years old. Oh. And it was just, it was, that was a, I mean, these are the women I've watched on screen for decades, just like you. So to finally see them all here together at this stage of their life is fabulous. I mean, I personally think what you have done here, Kent, for Mary Kay is what Brett Haley did for Sam Elliott with The Hero. Quick one. I'm just curious, Kent, what have you now learned about yourself as a director now having made this narrative feature that you can take forward into your future work? It doesn't matter... Uh, how you feel or whether you're intimidated by um, everything that's happening on the movie set because it is intimidating and that you can feel any way you want. You just have to go ahead and keep doing it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great thing to learn, and I learned it early on. It was a great lesson. And that was Kent Jones talking Diane in limited release now. See it, see it, see it. You will fall in love with it. And it might give you some pause for reflection on your own lives. Now, let's go back across the United States to Nevada, where we find The Mustang, written and directed by Laura de Clermont-Tonnerre, who would think that a French writer-director would be making a film about the Wild Horse Inmate Program here in the United States. But that's exactly what we get as the story of Ron, of Roman Coleman, uh, a convicted felon, a violent felon, uh, is given an opportunity to participate in this rehab therapy program, which involves the training of wild mustangs. Anyone familiar with the American Old West and even present-day Western United States knows that this is truly something that is very American, steeped in American history, In the myth of the Old West, uh, the wild mustangs that roam free, run free, uh, through the western desert areas. Uh, This is a real, a true story in the terms of the program. The Wild Horse Inmate Program 
It was started back in the 90s. And you've all heard of animal therapy for those, uh, for the disabled, for those in rehab, emotional therapy. This works with inmates, gives them a sense of purpose, teaches them how to train horses. And as you'll see in the Mustang, wild horses and prisoners, convicts, they really are very, they're allegories for each other. They're, they are one and the same. Um, it's fascinating to watch unfold. The structure of the story is solid. We're focused on the character of Roman, uh, who is beautifully played by Matthias Schoenartz. You know Matthias from things like Red Sparrow, Danish Girl, A Bigger Splash, Far From the Madding Crowd. This is a Matthias you've never seen before. And it's an incredible and indelible performance as he steps into the skin of Roman Coleman. And we've got Bruce Dern on hand. And how could you not love a, a film with Bruce Dern? I sat down with Laurie and with Matthias for exclusive interviews on the making of the Mustang. And right now, take a listen to my one-on-one -on -one with Matthias Schoenartz talking about the Mustang. Well, I have to tell you, an incredible performance. Oh, thank you. An incredible performance in this film. I working with horses number one is never easy. No, you did. You didn't have a relationship with horses before this film, did you? No, I, I, I'm an animal lover, but I, I was not familiar with with working with horses, properly riding horses. No, I was not familiar with it, so it, it was something I had to learn. <laughs> How much training did you have to go through to ready yourself? Just for the horse aspect of this film, I don't know, but but yeah, it, it, it took some time for sure. It took some time because I, 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 you know, I wanted to get ready in order to feel comfortable enough and not be scared anymore. Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I wanted, I didn't want to be perfectly trained, so I could still have the the insecurity component that that you know, that was you know needed for the film. So it was finding that balance. But I think, you know, a few months before we started shooting, we went to visit some ranches, did some basic, you know, basic works. Mm -hmm. Then as we were shooting, uh, before we started shooting, 10 days before, every day, and then sometimes after the shoot, I would still go and sometimes just spend time with the horse without mm -hmm. necessarily riding it, just spend time with it, being in the proximity of the horse and bonding with the horse and all that. Mm -hmm. Now, was this because the relationship that Roman has with the horse... It progresses, mm -hmm. as does Roman's own emotional state. Mm -hmm. Did you shoot in chronological order, or were you jumping around? Because I'm curious how that would affect the performance of both you and the horse. Yeah, but we had three different horses. Uh, we had one that was completely wild, then we had one that was semi-trained, and one that was completely <laughs> trained for all the different stages. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we, we tried to shoot as chronologically as possible. Uh, but we, we definitely didn't shoot com no, completely chronological, no, impossible. But as chronological as possible, for mm -hmm. sure, yeah. How challenging is that for you as an actor, particularly with a role like this? It's very rare you get the chance to shoot chronologically anyway. Yeah. So you're used to bouncing around. But the emotional structure and construct of Roman is so strong that you, we're really seeing definitive changes in him. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious for you as an actor how challenging that is when you're jumping back and forth with yeah. such strong emotional shifts. Yeah, at some point, I mean, it, it, it becomes such a part of, of what we do and what we are used to as actors to shift back and forth that at some point it becomes a second nature. So, so we kind of learn how to deal with ourselves and, and deal with it uh, it's not necessarily easy but I think for this movie we kind of tried because we also always shot in the same place mm -hmm. so we had kind of a lot of space to shoot as chronologically as possible mm -hmm. um, so so that helped a lot mm -hmm. we definitely the beginning of the movie we shot in the beginning and of course every now and then it was impossible yeah. like when we were shooting outside of course you're going to shoot some scene with the horses from the beginning and the middle and the end and but still, we could try to respect the chronology. 
you know, how hard it is, I, I don't know. It's, it's something that is a part of, of what we do when we shoot movies that we kind of learn how to deal with that very process. Turn on a dime. Kind of. I, I don't know how it works. It's just it's part of conditioning. I think as actors, when you shoot movies, that, that's how you get trained and you get conditioned so you, you know how to adapt to it. I don't know how it works, but I know that eventually <laughs> you come on set and you seem to know how to deal with it. <laughs> you know, this is a role that we haven't really seen from you before, mm. this type of character, this type of role, to this degree. So I'm, I'm wondering, because it's very internalized, um, Roman keeps everything inside. So we see, and the camera catches just loves you and follows you so beautifully. And we see rage and anger brewing. Mm. It's magnificent to watch you in this role. I'm curious how working within this decommissioned prison also helped you yeah, to sure. get into character here. Of course, 100%. I, I don't know to what extent, but but it's... it's uh, yeah, it's... it's, it's it's a certainty that 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 environment, that, that on an energetical level, on a visual level, um, definitely affects um, your 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 energy, your feelings, your and, and therefore your performance, and eventually that will translate on the screen. To what extent, I don't know. I, I can't put a percentage on it, but it definitely affects uh, affects everything. Yeah, and I love the metaphor and the parallels between the horse being in that confined mm. space, Roman being in a confined space of a cell and mm. having come out of solitary... Yeah, I think they, 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 find, they find, you know, they, they comfort each other in, in each other's loneliness. So it's not only, it's not only redemption, but there's also comfort in, in, in the shared loneliness. I think that there's many levels to their relationship. Uh, and they're, they're also a mirror to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also an allegory for each other. They're, um, yeah, there's many layers that are implicit to, to the writing, which makes yeah, which makes the writing of, of Laura so 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 poignant. What spoke to you when when you first got this script? And it's essentially it's a first time feature director, feature screenwriter, and such a strong character, but a different one for you. But I, I, for me, it was first of all, it was a passion project. She's been working on it for like six years very personally engaged very personally involved mm -hmm. so that's already a trigger and then you have I think you know the the, the relevance of the subject matter the mm -hmm. urgence of the subject matter then the poetic dimension of, of this interaction between this 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 completely so socially and, and emotionally handicapped man that interacts with this this horse that, which is symbolizes sincerity but also who is a brutish force of nature and, and is completely he's also unpredictable. unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. And then that every that, that very interaction. And then of course there's also the the the, the challenge it, it brings to you as an actor to, to portray a, a human being that has been living in these terrifying conditions to be incarcerated for twelve years, living five years in isolation. I mean, we can fantasize about that, but what does that really do to a human being? What does yeah. that really do to a one's heart and soul? Um, that is that is quite something. That's quite of a unknown territory and a mysterious territory, which is very uh, appealing. It was very appealing to me because because of, of what I thought the the story, which eventually tells a story of transformation and and. And the possibility of the transformation in, in a very unlikely situation, and that to me seemed very valuable to share mm -hmm. and inspirational to share. Mm -hmm. So all these things put together, yeah, made, made me want to do the movie. Mm -hmm. Were you aware of this program, the Wild Horse program, in the United States prisons? No. When no. you came into this? No, uh, no, not at all. What do you think no. of it now, having actually? Uh, apparently, it's one. It's it's one of the most successful. Uh, rehabilitation program. The percentage of recidivism is is, is like the smallest uh, from all the <laughs> from all the programs. So that is that is quite striking. Um, so I read the script, and then to know that that was an actual uh, program was was stunning to me mm -hmm. and surprising, and at the same time also inspiring. 
because, mm-hmm. you know, it exists, you know. How is the experience for you, because you've worked with so many different directors before, how is the experience of working with Laura and on such a passion project? So many jobs you come into, yeah. it's a job, but this, this has been so much of her life. Yeah, that was one of the main, that was also the trigger, because when I met, I, I felt her passion. She was the project, you know, mm-hmm. you just felt it. You speak to someone, you feel she is the project. There is no project and there is no director. The director is the project and the project is a director, period. So that's, yeah, that, that's, uh, you feel that right away. And that, that, that to me was very inspiring and, and motivating because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you feel that somebody is, is completely in, in synergy or in harmony with what it is they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that you did spend some time and did some research with actual prisoners. Yeah, we, we visited uh, altogether three maximum security uh, facilities, which is which were Solano Prison, High Desert, and St. Quentin. Mm-hmm. And then we spent there a day or two uh, to... to uh, of course, to you know, be guided around the facility, but then mostly to talk with inmates mm-hmm. uh, that that were in there. Some for like ten years, some fifteen, some thirty, some that might have a shot at parole, some that will never come out, and to uh, to to to, uh, to sit down with them and, and talk to them and, and listen to their experiences, to listen to why they were there in the first place, and then second of all, well, what their experiences were inside the facility and, and how do they how they see the future and yeah that was extremely extremely inspirational to to help me create that emotional silhouette of, of this character uh, yeah. how revelatory were those discussions that you had with these inmates it's not necessarily revelatory because but it's 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 um, because everyone has such preconceived notions about what inmates think, especially if they're in there for 30, 40, 50 Yeah, hours. yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's nice just to, to have some things uh, reconfirmed and, 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 and that, yeah, that you can detach the, the, the context from the person and mm-hmm. from the heart and the soul of the person. The context is the context and what they did to bring him in that. Okay, that's... But you strip all of that away, and then you see, you know, yeah, you see, you see a human being with a beating heart and a, and a living soul, and then just trying to just, you know, survive or do something with their life and find a new purpose again. And yeah, it's it's a devastating reality because I mean, these these places, man, that's, that's rock bottom right there. And you definitely brought a lot of that to Roman because it was very easy to see Roman did have a heart. He did care, and he was so wounded. But completely alienated from it. Yeah, grew a callus around it because, and that and that's also what it does. That's also what what you realize in the prison. That's where those testimonies were so helpful. Is that they talk about how everything in that facility is about is survivalism, and how do you survive is by domination. How do you dominate through violence, through manipulation, through all that? But that basically they all turn into a sociopath temporarily. But under that, there's a beating, living, feeling mm-hmm. individual. So how do you, how do these two parts of yourself coexist? So one part is an absolute sociopath, and the other one is is basically a kid that needs tenderness. And how do how does that zone work? Mm-hmm. It's pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, and I, and it really came together in the in the scene between Roman and his daughter. Yeah. Um, you know. First, there was the initial scene that was very cold, but then the subsequent. Yeah, and then scene, you see gra- gradually how how he defrosts. And, and it's yeah. and by the time you get to when the le- the later scene, mm. and ultimately with him holding the picture, yeah, with of her and his and his grandchild, yeah. it's just to watch you go through that transformation mm. is just outstanding. Oh, thanks. That. <laughs> that Became the beating heart of yeah. the film. Yeah, and that was the point. It's 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 uh, it's it's um, yeah to reveal to reveal that that beating heart by the end of the film, mm-hmm. and to make it so that that people not identify, but that they that they feel for the character. It's probably hard mm-hmm. to identify with the character, but 
to feel for the character and then share some form of empathy for the character, mm-hmm. despite what he has done. That's also why we revealed, revealed it kind of late, because if we would have revealed it earlier, maybe people would have distanced, uh, would have right. pushed him away. I was like, no, 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 but we got to... But I, it was written like that anyway. And so. I love seeing that journey. No. You know, the challenges that Roman faces and the difficulty in breaking that callus yeah. around his heart. Because eventually that's what this movie tells. It's, it's the possibility for transformation. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, again, it's, it's, a, it's an antidote for, for, against cynicism. Like, you know, to believe that something is possible. It's some, it's the most unlikely situation or the most unlikely person no, they they can change. It starts with the willingness for the person from the person to willing to, mm-hmm. and then it needs support and kindness and this and that. Mm-hmm. So if if this film can contribute to that notion that kindness and tenderness, you know, can 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 instigate to, to real deep change, then I think we did a good thing. And that is all the time we have today. I'll be back next week, alive and in person and in studio, hopefully. Got some great guests lined up for you. But until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.